Thanks for joining us for this message from Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. We pray that you are blessed by it. If you'd like to know more about Shades Valley and its ministries, you can visit us at shadesvalley.org. All right, our scripture reading this morning is in Ruth chapter 3, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 5. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with those young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. This is the word of the Lord. God. Let's pray together. So, Father, we are grateful. Grateful for a community in which we can truly be family. Grateful that you have given us your word that makes us family, bound together by the blood of your son, the word made flesh. We're thankful that you point us to him through the word written. We pray that's what you would do this morning through this beautiful story of your servants, Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz. We pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. So if you haven't already, I do invite you to open your Bibles to Ruth chapter 3. Ruth chapter 3 for part 3 of our series, The Light Shines. Um, growing up, both of my sisters played piano, they also played flute, and uh, my parents really supported their musical endeavors. Uh, we had a piano, they bought flutes for both of them. My uh, musical choice of instrument was drums. Um, and for some strange reason, I didn't feel like my parents supported uh, my musical dreams like they did my sister's, and I often complained about it loudly. Well, I'll never forget, uh, one morning, precisely at 6 a.m., the sound of drums just begins reverberating through my room. And like, I sit up straight in bed, and I'm stumbling through the dark trying to figure out where the sound is coming from. And eventually, I, become, I, I come upon a, an alarm clock that is shaped like a drum set. And it takes me a while to figure out how to turn it off. It was the kick pedal. And when you pressed the kick pedal, the drum stopped and it went, good morning. So I storm out of my room and find the first person that I can down the hall, my mother. And I hold up this alarm clock and I'm like, whose idea of a sick joke is this? And my sweet mother, um, her eyes just well up with tears. And she goes, I got it as a gift because I just wanted you to feel supported. Yeah, yeah, I still feel bad about that. Um, but the point is, the point is that the alarm clock, it was, it was my mother's faithful love on display. And I nearly missed it uh, because it came at an unexpected time, in an unexpected way, in an unexpected place. Shades, God's faithful love is like that. It's unexpected. That is what shines forth 
from the pages of Ruth chapter 3. It, it reveals to us the unexpected nature of God's faithful love, lest we miss it. If you remember, throughout our series, we've talked about the fact that, that the book of Ruth, the purpose of it is to help us see God's faithful love, his chesed, that's the Hebrew word for it. We want to see his faithful love on display, and Ruth shows us that that faithful love, it shines brightly in every place. We want to see that it does that so that no matter what place we find ourselves in, we will hold on to hope. God's faithful love can be found here too. The book of Ruth in chapter 1, it showed us God's faithful love shining amidst the famine, or in other words, in the darkest and hardest places of our lives. God's faithful love shines forth there. Ruth chapter 2 showed us God's faithful love shining forth in the field. That's the everyday, mundane, daily places of our lives. And I think after seeing those two things, we might be left thinking, what other place could possibly be left? Shades, Ruth chapter 3 has a surprise that takes us to the place of the threshing floor. We've moved from the famine to the field and now to the floor. In other words, to unexpected places. What we're going to see is that the threshing floor is the most unlikely place for faithful love to be put on display. But Ruth 3 reveals that Hesed, faithful love, it's surprising, it's shocking, shining forth precisely from unexpected places in unexpected ways. What does that look like? I want to know so I can see it when it shows up and I don't, I don't miss it. I don't think that God's promises that he holds out to me that are surprising and unexpected, I don't think of them as some kind of sick joke. But I see that they're real their love, they're from me, and they give me hope. So let's see it in Ruth chapter 3. By going with Ruth down to the floor. Read with me. Ruth 3, verses 1 and 2. I'm going to get off the stool. I tried. I'm tired. I can't stay on a stool. It's not in my nature. I could lose my legs, and y'all wouldn't be able to keep me in a stool. All right, let's keep going. Ruth chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to Ruth, my daughter... Should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative? Uh, is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. These verses are already unexpected, shocking. At least they should be if you've been tracking with the story, because they're unexpected and shocking. Because Naomi, right here, Naomi sounds hopeful. I mean. This is the same Naomi who at the end of chapter 1, due to a famine, the death of her husband, the death of her sons, her life was left empty through a famine of food, a famine of family, and she decided she didn't want to be called anything but Mara, which means bitter. Like this is the same Naomi right here in Ruth chapter 3. The Naomi who could see nothing but her own emptiness. But now her focus has shifted from her own emptiness to the emptiness of her daughter-in-law. She's not focused on herself. She's focused on someone else. She's focused on Ruth, and she has hope of helping Ruth's emptiness be filled. What happened to Naomi? The unexpected, surprising, faithful love of God. Is that not precisely what we've seen in the past weeks, particularly in Ruth chapter 2? 
Has God not providentially provided for Naomi through Ruth, her daughter-in-law? In In chapter 2, Ruth went out into the fields to glean barley, and God showed favor to her and Naomi by not just providing barley, but providing it through Boaz. Boaz, the owner of the field where Ruth gleaned, he pursued Ruth, provided protection, made sure that she had plenty of grain provided. He showed faithful love toward her because he'd heard about the faithful love she'd showed towards Naomi. And if you remember at the end of chapter two, when Ruth comes home, she does so with a week's worth of barley. She tells Naomi it came from Boaz. And you remember Naomi's reaction. She moves from bitterness into worshiping because she knows and she feels for the first time in this book, the Lord sees me. He's not forgotten me. He's not abandoned me. And her heart begins to change. That's what we're seeing right here at the beginning of Ruth 3. What we're seeing is that when you experience the unexpected, surprising, faithful love of God, you begin to love in surprising, unexpected ways. Do you see that with Naomi? She had no expectation of experiencing God's faithfulness or love. She does, and it begins to change her heart, and she begins to love in ways that surprise us, ways that are unexpected. This is the first of three pictures we need to see of faithful love in Ruth chapter 3. Namely, here you go, number one, faithful love for others. If you've been with us through this series, you recognize that already because in every chapter, we have looked at the same three pictures of faithful love. We've looked at in the midst of the famine, in the midst of the field, what does faithful love for others look like? What does faithful love for the Lord look like? What does the Lord's faithful love for us look like? And we're going to see those same three pictures right here at the floor, in the unexpected places. What does faithful love for others look like? The floor is where Naomi tells Ruth to go. Go down to the threshing floor. That's what we see if we keep reading past verse 2. Look at it again. Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, anoint yourself, put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Okay, so ignore Naomi's weird dating advice for a moment. (laughs) And just see why she's giving it. Look back at verse 1. My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? The word rest, Manoach. You can hear Noah's name in there. One who will bring rest. This word rest, it implies a place of protection. A place of provision. A place like Ruth had found in Boaz's field. It was a place where she was provided for. That was a place where she was protected, at least as long as the harvesting season lasted, and that's over now. So now, Naomi means for Ruth to find a permanent place of rest. Not a temporary place in Boaz's field, a permanent place in Boaz's family. She's, She's seeking to fill Ruth's emptiness. With what? With rest. 
The very thing Naomi had prayed for Ruth all the way back in chapter 1. Do you remember that? Ruth chapter 1 and verse 9, Naomi prays, The Lord grant that you may find rest in the house of a husband. And so now Naomi seeks to become the means that the Lord will use to fulfill that prayer. Here is what faithful love for others looks like on the floor. Down in the nitty-gritty, in the the places where you never expect to see it coming. Here's what faithful love for others looks like. Here's how it's unexpected. Here's how it's surprising. Naomi is in a position where it would be normal and natural for her to put her own needs first. That's what we expect someone in her position to do. Yet faithful love surprises us as she seeks to meet the needs of Ruth. This is starting to sound a heck of a lot like Philippians 2. Philippians 2 and verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. I wonder what comes to mind for you when I read those words. I, uh, I fear that in our culture, we read those words out of Philippians 2, count others as more significant than yourselves. Look, not only to your own interest, but to the interest of others. I think that often we read those words and we're like, oh, Philippians, you're so cute. We think that those words are simplistic at best, toxic at worst. It's cute, Philippians, that you think we can live our lives counting others as more significant than ourselves, but we know better now. We know that to live that way leads to burnout and it leads to bitterness, which is why our more enlightened and educated culture is all about practicing some self-care. Got to get some me time and put me first. I think that's the advice all of us would probably give Naomi. Be like, girl, you, you can't be like sacrificing yourself for the needs of Ruth. You got, you got to focus on you. You got to do some self-care. Shades, we are the ones who have become simplistic and toxic in our thinking because, stay with me, everybody's getting riled up because I'm going mean on self-care. Stay with me. We're the ones who've become too simplistic and toxic in our thinking because we use self-care to eliminate self-sacrifice. The Bible's vision is bigger. It uses self-care. It doesn't talk about it as self-care. It talks about it as stewardship. Self-care puts me at the center of the universe. Stewardship keeps God there. But in wisdom, it tells me I've got to steward my time. I've got to steward my resources. I have to have time where I can recharge. I have to set appropriate boundaries. I do have to practice self-care. But the Bible's vision is bigger. It doesn't use self-care to eliminate self-sacrifice. It uses self-care to fuel self-sacrifice. Like the point and the end is never just me. It's the glory of God and the good of his People, listen to Philippians chapter 2 and verse 4 again. Let each of you look not only to his own interests. Like, yeah, of course you're going to do that. Self-care is assumed. 
It's like, yeah, you've got it. Jesus had times where he withdrew to recharge. Jesus set boundaries. Of course, that's helped. Sometimes setting boundaries is the most loving thing you can do. But everything, everything that the Bible calls us towards is aimed ultimately at love of God and love of others, even calling us to set boundaries, even calling us to steward our time and make sure that we are filled up first before pouring ourselves out. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, do that, but not as an end, as a means, so that you can look also to the interest of others. This is unexpected, faithful love, and we see it flowing out of Naomi towards Ruth. But not just that way. We see it going the other way, too. We see this kind of self-sacrificial, faithful love flowing out of Ruth towards Naomi. Look at verse 5. And Ruth replied, all that you say I will do. Even the weird feet uncovering thing. Ruth agrees to Naomi's strange plan. Why? we got to keep reading to see why. Verse 6. So Ruth went down to the threshing floor. And she did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he's not, he's not plastered, his heart was merry, that's Bible for buzz. <laughs> his heart was merry. He went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and laid down. All this is really weird to us. And don't worry, it was weird back then. This was not a normal courting tactic. The threshing floor specifically was not a place where one expected to see faithful love put on display. Quite the opposite. So the threshing floor is where the men who owned fields, it's where they would gather together their barley and their wheat after the harvest. And what they would do is in the evenings, they would take a winnowing fork and they would toss it up in the air and the cool evening breeze would blow away the chaff and all the junk you didn't want. And the stalks of grain and barley, they would fall back down and you'd pile them up. This process took a while and so typically you'd even sleep there. Because you don't want animals coming and stealing your pile of grain, barley, and you don't want thieves coming to steal it either. And so, over the course of this threshing period, the threshing floor often had like a celebratory like party atmosphere. Because, I mean, this is, this is the fruit of your labor, especially if it's a good harvest. Like, you're really celebrating. There, were feast, there was feasting and drinking, just like we see with Boaz. And it was not uncommon for lewd sexual practices to take place. Prostitution was common. You can see why the threshing floor is not the place you would expect to see faithful love on display. And you can see why Naomi's plan sounds strange, risky, risque even. She tells Ruth, take a bath. Put on some perfume and get a warm cloak. Cloak would double as a blanket for the poor. Take a warm cloak because you're going to be out all night at the threshing floor. I mean, if I didn't know any better, this sounds like one of the verses to here's your one chance, fancy, don't let me down. Like that's what it looks like is happening right here. But that's not what's going on at all. 
Naomi's plan is risky, it's risque, but there's a reason for it. So in Israelite culture, it was customary for widows like Ruth, like Naomi, to have an official period of mourning after their husband had died. And everybody would know that they were in mourning because it would be indicated primarily by two things. One, by stereotypical widow garb. And typically widows during that mourning period did not bathe much, if at all. This is probably why Boaz has not pursued Ruth any further. I mean, in chapter 2, we, we saw Boaz, he's clearly interested in Ruth, but we were also told that he's a worthy man back in chapter 2 and verse 1. In other words, he's a man of character. So he would give her the space she needed to grieve. But now Naomi says, Ruth, the time has come. I, I want to see you in a place of rest. Put your morning clothes away. Wash, anoint your face, show Boaz that you are ready to move toward marriage. But she gives her some wisdom here. Don't waltz into that party atmosphere down on the, with a fresh bath and some perfume. Don't waltz into the party atmosphere at the threshing floor and get mistaken for a prostitute. No, wait until you can meet with Boaz alone when he's gone off to sleep. And even then, don't just wake him up. Like, who knows what that could look like to him and what, what he might think. Just uncover his feet. Lie down and wait until he wakes from his toes getting cold. He'll see that you're there, but you're not making any advances. And then you will have a chance for a private conversation, a chance for your emptiness to finally be filled, a chance for rest. And so Ruth does exactly what Naomi says, but she doesn't do it for herself, her own fullness, for her own rest. No, Ruth does what Naomi says for Naomi to fill her emptiness and to bring her rest. Verse 8, at midnight, when the night's at its darkest, probably its coldest, Boaz was startled. He turned over, and behold, henna. He rewarded me, behold up now. A woman lay at his feet. Well, that's new. It was not the situation I was in. I do not remember her being there. Okay. How much wine did I have? To okay. The surprising nature of this only grows. Look at verse 9. Boaz says, who are you? Now, he knows Ruth, but it's dark, and she's had a bath. <laughs> it's in the text. I'm, just, I'm not trying to make a joke. It's just what it says. Anyway, she answered, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Spread your wings over your servant. We've heard words like that before, but not from Ruth, from Boaz. Do you remember chapter 2, verse 12, when Boaz first meets Ruth? What does he say? He says, the Lord repay you 
for what you have done. He means how she has self-sacrificially loved her mother-in-law. Left her own father and mother, her own land, her own native people, all those things to care for her mother-in-law, Naomi. And Boaz says, may the Lord repay you and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz recognized Ruth's faith. That she trusted the Lord for her provision and protection. That's what this image of like a baby bird coming underneath its mother's wings is meant to convey provision, protection. She was trusting the Lord coming under his wings, trusting him for provision, protection. And Boaz sees that and says, may the Lord do that for you. And now Ruth responds with, yes, Boaz, may he do it through you. You put your wings over me. Basically, she's saying, Boaz, you be the means of God's wings being spread over me. You be the means of God's protection and provision. And not just temporarily like you have while I work in your field. No, permanently by making me a part of your family. This is a marriage proposal. I know that because of how Ruth concludes verse 9. Spread your wings over me for you are a redeemer. What does she mean? Naomi, back at the beginning of the chapter, was like, hey, let's try this dating Boaz thing because he's a relative. What, what? And, and then Ruth is like, hey, you can totally do this marriage thing because you're a redeemer. He gets called a relative and a redeemer. To understand what's going on, we got to put those two things together. According to the Old Testament law, you can look it up, Deuteronomy chapter 25. If a woman in Israel became a widow and she had no sons, no one who would grow up and inherit his father's property, land, wealth, have all of that to continue care for her. If she didn't have any sons, then she was to marry the closest relative of her deceased husband. I know this is weird to us, just hang with me. So whether that's brother, uncle, cousin, just another member of the clan, she was to marry the closest relative of her deceased husband, and the firstborn son legally would be considered the child of her deceased husband. He would preserve the family name, preserve the family property, the family legacy, all of it. In other words, everything that death took away from a widow would be reversed and redeemed. Which is why the relative husband was known as a redeemer. To redeem means to rescue, to save, to, to buy back something that was lost. It was a word that was commonly used uh, in slavery contexts. Uh, if someone, let's say I was, was poor and I sold myself into slavery, which was a common thing that would happen in the ancient Near East, I sell myself into slavery to pay my debts, and a relative of mine buys me out of slavery to set me free. They redeemed me. They paid the price that I owed in order that I might go free. That's what redemption is. Everything slavery took away from me was redeemed. This is what God did for his people. Is it not? They were enslaved and he brought them out in order to set them free. This is why he is known as their redeemer. And this is what Ruth is asking Boaz to do as a relative, as a kinsman redeemer. But we still might ask, why? I mean, 
Couldn't Ruth just marry anybody she wanted? Wouldn't that accomplish the same thing? Wouldn't that meet all of her future needs? Yes and no. In other words, yes, Ruth could marry anybody, and that would meet some of her own needs. But only a redeemer could meet all the needs. What do I mean? Without a redeemer, Ruth may be okay. Naomi will still be left destitute. Without a redeemer, the names of Naomi's husband, Elimelech, the name of Ruth's husband, Milan, they, their property, their legacy, it will all be lost to history. So sure, Ruth could seek to marry in order to merely meet her own needs, but she displays faithful love for Naomi. Here is what faithful love for others looks like on the floor. It looks like doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, counting the needs of others more significant than your own, looking not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is what she's doing. Boaz sees it, and he is blown away by such unexpected love in such an unexpected place. I mean, he's at the threshing floor. What could he expect here? He could expect to be propositioned by a prostitute. He could not expect a marriage proposal. Like, like who would have guessed in a place known for marital unfaithfulness, that would be the very place he would find marital faithfulness? Like, Shades, do you, do you see, do you see faithful love, chesed shining forth in the most unexpected of places, the floor? Boaz sees it. Look at verse 10. And Boaz said, may you, Ruth, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter, just a term of endearment and respect. You have made this last kindness chesed. This last act of faithful love, you have made it greater than the first. And that you haven't gone after young men, whether poor or rich, Back in, what does Boaz mean right here? Back in chapter two, Boaz talked about Ruth's first kindness, her first display of hesed. It was, it was her first display of faithful love towards Naomi when she left father and mother, nation, all of that in order to help care for Naomi. And Boaz looks at that and looks at what Ruth is doing now and he says, what you're doing now is even greater because right now I recognize you could marry anybody you want. She's known, we're gonna read later, she's known as a worthy woman in the community. She can marry anybody. Boaz knows she's choosing him, not merely for her own sake, but for Naomi's. She's ensuring Naomi will be protected. She will be provided for permanently. Elimelech, Malon, their names will be remembered even now, this morning, Shades Valley, because of the self-sacrificial love of Ruth. Like, in a situation... Where, where Boaz himself sees it as natural and normal for Ruth to pursue her own interests first. No one would fault her if she went after anybody else. He sees that. That would be natural and normal. He's blown away by her self-sacrificial faithful love. This is what faithful love for others looks like on the floor. And we see it unexpectedly shining forth from Naomi 
to Ruth, and from Ruth to Naomi. How is love like that even possible? Like, that's what I'm left asking. I don't know how selfish your heart is, but mine, could, I tell people I didn't think I was a selfish person until I got married, and then I didn't know how selfish I was until I had children. Good gravy. How is self-sacrificial love like this even possible? It's possible because Ruth and Naomi are both reflecting the very love the Lord has shown to them. If we see the love and receive the love that God has shown to us, that is the very love that we begin to reflect. And his love that he shows to us is the next thing that we see shine forth unexpectedly in Ruth chapter 3. We're going to breeze through these last two. Everybody ready? Number two, we need to see the Lord's faithful love for us. What does that look like on the floor? In unexpected and surprising ways. The Lord's faithful love for us. See it shine forth from the threshing room floor. We see it through Boaz. Look at verse 11. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. We've talked about how Boaz throughout this book becomes a pointer, an image, a type of Christ. He shows us, we're, we're being shown what the Lord's love looks like towards his people as Boaz shows it to Ruth. And here we are seeing it is quite unexpected. Boaz gives Ruth a promise. I will do for you all that you ask. I will redeem you. Everything that death took from you, Ruth, I'll restore it. I will rescue. This is why. This is why a redeemer outshines every other option that surrounds us. Sure, Ruth could have gone after any other man who could have provided temporary relief from some of her needs, but only a redeemer could permanently meet every need, reverse everything. And in the most unexpected place for redemption to take place, the threshing floor, that is where redeeming faithful love shines forth. Shades, shades, Do you see that this is how the Lord loves you and me? Do you you see that? Sure, we, like Ruth, we could look around this world and we could find all sorts of things that will provide temporary relief to some of our needs. But only, only a redeemer can permanently meet every need that we have. Because we're like Ruth. Death has touched everything in our lives. Through sin, death has infected every aspect of our existence, and we can't escape it. We are slaves, slaves to sin and to death. And one day, no matter if you believe what I'm saying right now or not, one day you cannot deny the fact that death will take everything that we think will satisfy us, including our very lives. And there is only one, only one who can redeem, buy us back from sin and death, the death that sin deserves by paying the price of death itself, dying in our place, Jesus. Jesus redeems us by his blood and reverses everything, including death itself. And he accomplishes, get this, shades, he accomplishes this redemption in the most unexpected place. The cross, a place known for what? Death. 
And he uses it to give us the exact opposite. Life. From the most unexpected of places, redeeming, faithful love shines forth. That's the point of Philippians 2, the passage we've kept referencing that shows us what unexpected love looks like, that we count the others more significant than ourselves, look not only to our own interests, but to the interests of others. We do all of that, Philippians 2 goes on to say, because that's what Christ did, and he did it where? He did it at the cross, Philippians 2 says. Shades. Like Ruth, we can remove our mourning clothes. Because our lives are no longer defined by death. Jesus came to the cross and in the most unexpected way by his redeeming faithful love in the most unexpected place, the place of death, he brought us life. He came to the floor. He does that in all of our lives. Jesus meets you on the floor of your life the most unexpected place that you can imagine, the place that feels like death itself. He meets you there and he takes that place and transforms it by his grace. I was 16 years old the first time I had a serious battle with depression. It lasted nearly a year. I didn't have any words for it. I didn't know what it was. And I'll never forget, like as it was coming to I didn't know it was coming to a close. It was, felt like it was crushing me. I found myself in, in the lowest place I'd ever been emotionally, spiritually, and I quite literally physically got low. I was face down on the floor in my bedroom. I'll never forget it. Same room where that stupid drum alarm clock went off. Mom, I love you. She listens to the podcast. Mom, I love you. I feel very supported by that alarm clock to this day. But I found myself face down. I kept it. I used it until I had broken every drum off of it from hitting it. I was face down on the floor, and I remember very vividly my very simple prayer. Lord, kill me or change me, because this sucks. Sorry, Mom, for saying sucks in a sermon. That was a bad word in my house growing up. So sorry for bringing that filth into here. Thank you. Thank you, Zach. <laughs> Jesus met me in that place of guilt and shame and despair. And he made it a place that I go back to again and again and again when I tell my story to testify to his grace. He redeemed and reversed that floor. He reversed what that moment means in my story. That's what redemption does. It takes the threshing room floors of unfaithfulness and makes them places of faithfulness. Is that not what we saw in Ruth 3? It, redemption takes places of death like the cross and makes them places of life. It takes things like nail scars in Jesus' hands that are signs of defeat, supposedly, and it turns them into evidences of victory. Shades, what's your threshing room floor? What are your scars? Like those unexpected places. That is where Jesus meets you.
and redeems that place by his grace. He has promised to do just that, like Boaz. Boaz promised Ruth at the threshing room floor, I will redeem you. Don't believe him? Boaz says, I'll give you a preview that my word is good. His promise comes with a preview, a down payment, as it were. That's what we see in verses 12 through 18. Boaz promises Ruth, you are going to be redeemed. However, there's a little complication. Look at verse 12. It is true, Boaz says, that I am a redeemer. Yet, there's a redeemer nearer than I. There's a closer kin. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Ruth, I won't let anything get in the way of your redemption. One way or another, you will be redeemed and everything death took from you will be reversed. All your emptiness will be filled. That's Boaz's promise. And to prove that those aren't just words, that it's not just kind of some kind of sick joke, his promise comes with a preview. He sends Ruth home with six measures of barley. And in verse 17, we find out why. He tells Ruth, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. You must not go back empty. Curious. That sounds a lot like Naomi's words at the end of chapter 1. Naomi said, the Lord has brought me back empty. Same word. And now through Boaz, the Lord promises that emptiness is being filled. And that promise comes with a preview, a down payment that proves his word is good. I'm going to fill your emptiness. Here's just a small foretaste. I will fulfill the rest of it. Naomi knows that's what Boaz means. She says as much. Look at verse 18. Naomi tells Ruth, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Shades, has not God made the exact same promise to you through Christ that Boaz makes to Ruth right here? Has he not? Has God not promised you he will redeem you? Nothing will get in the way of him bringing your redemption to completion. We live in the space that Ruth finds herself right now, do we not? Already redeemed, she's got a promise, but not yet fully redeemed. Already not yet, isn't that where we live? Christ has accomplished, paid for our redemption, but we have not yet experienced its full consummation. But don't worry, like Boaz, Christ's promise comes with a preview a down payment, if you will. That's precisely what Ephesians 1.14 calls the Holy Spirit. A down payment, a preview of what is to come, a way we can know that God's promises are not some sick joke. He has already given us himself by his spirit. This is what the Lord's faithful love for us looks like on the floor of our lives. It looks like a promise with a preview. And that, that is what empowers us to, to love others. Like we see Naomi loving Ruth and Ruth loving Naomi. And it's what empowers us to, 
to love God, to do what Naomi calls Ruth to do in verse 18. Did you see the instructions that Naomi gave to Ruth? Her instructions were, wait. Wait, my daughter. That's not an inactive, passive waiting. That's an active hoping. That's an active faith. All throughout the Bible, the word wait is used nearly as a synonym for the word faith. Wait, Ruth, and see, this man, he will not rest until he settles this matter today. His promise comes with a preview, which empowers us to wait in faith that he will not rest. Shades, the same is true for us. God's promise to redeem us comes with the preview of the Holy Spirit, which empowers us to have faith. We know that our God will not rest until he brings our rest to fruition. Just like Boaz wasn't going to rest until he brought Ruth's rest to fruition fruition. This, this is the third and final picture, and it takes 30 seconds for us to see. The third and final picture of faithful love we need to see. Number three, faithful love for the Lord. We've seen what faithful love for each other at the floor looks like. We've seen what the, love's fa- what the Lord's faithful love for us looks like. What, how do we respond to that? What does is, what is our faithful love back to the Lord looks like this in the floor, in the unexpected places of our lives? When, when, when it looks like nothing, it... When we find ourselves in the places of life where it looks like nothing is guaranteed, nothing can be expected, what does faithful love for the Lord look like there? It looks like waiting in faith. It's not passively waiting to see what our fate may be. No, it's actively trusting and living in light of our hope that is guaranteed. Shades, this is what faithful love for the Lord looks like on the floor, in the most unexpected place, the place of this restless world where nothing seems guaranteed. We are a people who rest in faith because everything we need is guaranteed. Our Redeemer has promised his faithful love to us, and he's given us a preview that empowers us to love him and reflect his love to the world in the most unexpected of ways, in the most unexpected places. Do you see? Do you see from Ruth 3 how the unexpected nature of the faithful love of God shines forth? Shades, the light of God's faithful love shines, even at, especially at, now go into the world in peace have courage hold on to what is good honor all men strengthen the faint-hearted support the weak help the suffering and share the gospel love and serve the lord in the power of the holy spirit and may the grace of our lord jesus christ be with us all